Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. And as you find that, if you would stand, we'll read God's Word together. Matthew 9, starting in verse 10. says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, just for the testimony of who you are that we can see and sing about in song and read about in your word. And we do just pray and ask, God, that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace, Lord, that we would uh, consider who Jesus is now in this time together. And that we would just come to a greater understanding, Lord, that not just intellectually, but in our hearts, we would see and believe, and that we would, in believing, just walk in faith, and we would worship you. And so we just ask that you would have your way in our hearts, that we would be teachable and humble, and just ask for your words, and pray us in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, well, this summer, if you weren't, if you weren't here last week, uh, this summer at our summer camp at His Hill, I was, for two of the weeks of camp, I taught through this question of who is Jesus and looked at, between the two weeks, ten different points of who Jesus is. How he maybe identifies himself or how other people identify him by label or just in the things that he does, labels that we could attribute to him based on his, his work in ministry when he's on earth. And as we consider the different labels and the titles that Jesus has, last week we looked at Jesus as our teacher. And when we look at scripture, and specifically the Gospels, there's, there's just so many different directions that, that we could go and titles of Christ that we could consider and in Exodus chapter 3 is when Moses is talking uh, to God at the burning bush. And he's wondering, who do I tell the people that you are? And God responds, I am who I am. And, and you consider the name that God uses to identify himself. And it's very broad that he is all that there is. Uh, and so, so we're looking here last week at Jesus' teacher, and now we're going to look at Jesus as healer, and, and just recognizing that, I mean, there's just so much that we could talk about, and that's why we get to open the Word and continue to learn about who Christ is day after day and week after week, because He is God. There's so much that we could consider. And so, uh, this morning, I want to just take some time to look at what it means that Jesus is healer. When people hear the name of Michael Jordan, uh, they don't usually think of golf. Because even though he might have played golf, he tried it, he might have played baseball, people don't think of Michael Jordan and think of baseball or golf. We think of basketball. Because that is just who he was. It's what he did. So much of his life revolved around the sport of basketball. And that's what made him famous. And when we think of Jesus as healer, it's just important that we recognize that Jesus healed so many people. Healing was a huge part of his ministry of his day-to-day life, that he would travel from place to place and he would cure countless people of diseases, of sicknesses. He would cast demons out of people. And we have some individual stories in Scripture 
But that doesn't even just begin to scratch the surface of all the people that he actually healed and he gave, he restored their health. So I want to just look at eight verses here. I'm just going to skim through some verses just in Matthew uh, that just gives us a taste of the breadth of the numbers of people that Jesus healed. Because it's easy to think about the individual stories. And, and as I was looking at this some more, it just, again, I had to step back and just reflect on this reality that Jesus spent a lot of time dealing with sick people and healing them. This is a, a significant part of who he was, how people perceived him to be. So in Matthew 4, verses 23 and 24, it just says, Jesus was going through all of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and he's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. News about him spread throughout all Syria. And so then from Syria, they brought to him all who were ill those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew 8, verse 16, When evening came, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed, and he cast the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. Matthew 12, 15, But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. Matthew 15, 30, and large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame and crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. Matthew 19, 2, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Matthew 21, 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Time after time, Jesus is healing not just individuals, like one at a time, but there's mobs of people, there's crowds of people coming to Jesus, and it says on several occasions, he heals every single one of them. He heals them all. And the hours, and and it doesn't give the impression that he's standing in front of the crowd of sick people and he says, all of you be healed. But it seems as if he's going from person to person healing them. That's not like a you know, five-minute, hold on, I need to stop and heal somebody and I'm going to go on about my day. But he's in one place for extended periods of time. The news about him is spreading so much because of his healing. And... And we talk about Jesus as the great physician, and that's one of the labels that we use for him, because it's who he is, but recognizing during his time on earth that the people knew him as this miracle-working man who took away people's sicknesses. And, And that's not something that we are quick to identify Jesus with, because we recognize that I don't just come to Jesus when I get a cold and say, Jesus, take away my cold, and he heals it. It just doesn't, he doesn't do that. But in this time, as he is in Israel, that is exactly what's happening, it seems. That people are coming to him and he's healing every single sickness. Whether it's something that people have had from birth, something they got later on in life, that he's healing people. Jesus is famous among the crowds because he's healing. He's removing people's sickness. This is what he's known for. And yet, what Jesus was known for by the people is not what determined Jesus' purpose among the people. Just because he's known by the people as a healer, it doesn't mean that Jesus came to the people simply for the purpose of taking away their physical ailments. There's more to it than that. The people were constantly mesmerized by the miracles. And I probably would have been too. I mean, nothing like this, they say, nothing like this has ever happened before in Israel. No kidding. There's never been somebody who's come and just heals gobs of people. Day in and day out. So they're fascinated by him. He's a miracle worker. We would be fascinated by this too. Jeff mentioned magic tricks in Sunday school this morning. And I was thinking, yeah, 
People who do magic tricks, it often draws a crowd because we're mesmerized by the unexplainable. Jesus is drawing so many people. And we can get, as believers, so caught up on what Jesus does that we begin to neglect the reality of who he is. And this is one of the things that comes up throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is drawing lots of crowds because of what he's doing, and people are coming to him because of what he does, but not because of who he is. As he's healing hundreds of people, it's just a major part of how Jesus spent his time serving people. But the doing, the healing, that's not the end. That's not what he primarily came for. But instead, the doing, the healing, is intended to direct our attention to the doer, the one behind the activity. And so, when we think about Jesus as healer, and this is such a significant part of his ministry, he spends hours and hours of his time just healing people's sicknesses. Why is it that Jesus heals people? And that's what I want to take some time just to consider. So in Matthew 14, we're going to come back to Matthew 9. Matthew 14 and verse 14. Considering the question, why is it that Jesus heals people? Here's one reason. I read this earlier. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. And he healed their sick. It's really simple. You know, it's not rocket science. Jesus sees people who are in distress, who are discouraged in their sickness, in their physical pain, and he has compassion. He doesn't say, you guys just need to get over it. He doesn't say, you guys have no idea what I'm about to experience. This is nothing compared to what I'm going to go through. But instead, he sees them where they're at, and he has compassion. He doesn't belittle their situation. But he steps into it. He meets them where they are. But if compassion is the only motivation behind Jesus' healing, then why doesn't everybody get healed? Because everyone doesn't get healed. But if compassion is his primary motivation then why is it that there's so many people as he goes from town to town that still haven't been healed yet, and then even today, so many Christians, there's still sickness. There's ailments. Why is it? And I don't think that compassion, though that he has compassion for all people, that is not the driving motivation that determines whether or not he's going to deliver somebody from physical ailments. And so his second reason of why he heals. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 tells a story that we're familiar with. You see it in Luke 5 as well. The healing of the paralytic. And in Luke 5 it includes that he's lowered down by his friends from his ceiling. I think it's the same story that's being shared there in Matthew 9 and Luke 5. Because the, the conversation that happens after this paralytic enters into Jesus' presence is, is exactly the same in Luke 5 and in Matthew 9. So I think this is the same story. And we get more details in Luke about him being lowered from the ceiling. And this man comes, who's paralyzed. His friends bring him. And he enters into Jesus' presence. There's a crowd all around Jesus. He can't get to Jesus. His friends can't get to Jesus. And they're carrying this lame man on a stretcher. And finally, they, they figure out a way to get this guy in front of Jesus. Why do they want him to get in front of Jesus? Because Jesus has a reputation. He heals people. This is what he's known for. And so they say, if we can just get our friend in front of Jesus, then Jesus is going to heal him. And I love this story. Because this guy, you know, all the work and the, the ways that they come up with to try to get him to be at Jesus' feet, and they finally get there. And you think, well done, guys. Now all of our efforts are going to be paid off. And this man who's lying on a stretcher, who's paralyzed, 
you just anticipate, imagine that the anticipation in his eyes is he's looking at Jesus. He's heard about Jesus healing people. He's seen probably Jesus healing people. And now it's his turn. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. And it's like, well, that's not really why I came. He doesn't say that. You know, maybe that's not what he's thinking. But from the crowds standing there, I would imagine there's the thought of, that's kind of just mean. Like, you've, you have this opportunity to make, take away this man's paralysis, and instead of healing him, you're going to talk about something that's, you know, subje- that you can't see, you know, something that's, that's abstract, his sin. Why aren't you going to heal him? Because isn't that what the compassionate thing would be to do? Heal this man from his paralysis. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the people are really confused by that. And they say, the religious leaders that are there, you know, Jesus, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. That doesn't, I mean, it's just words. There's no way that you can prove that this man's sins are forgiven. And so Jesus says, in order to prove that I have the right to forgive sins, I'm going to show you that I have the power to command health. That I have power over creation. I have power over this man's body. Because I am the Son of God. And so in order to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins as God, he turns to the paralytic and he says, Stand up and pick up your mat and go home. And he's healed. And the man came initially to be healed, but the first interaction he has with Jesus, I would imagine, was a bit of a disappointment. And we often, I often, come to Jesus with my problem And he deals with my problem in a way that's a bit disappointing sometimes. Jesus, these are all the issues, and I know you have the power to do it, and you have the compassion in your heart towards me. Your word says that, so therefore, here's my issues. And I can be a little disappointed with how Jesus responds. Because we come to Jesus because of what he does and not because of who he is. There's that distinction that we fall into so easily because we begin to get so caught up in the circumstances that we're walking through on a day-to-day basis. That begins to be what grabs our attention. And so we go to the person who we know can change our circumstances And we go to him so he will change our circumstance. And we're not going to him because of simply who he is. So Jesus heals this man as proof that he's able to forgive sin. And the healing that he does, this miracle he does, is intended to simply be a signpost pointing to the reality of Jesus' own identity. The healing, the miracle, the change that Jesus performs in this man's life is intended to point the man to the person of Christ, not to the miracle itself. And this is one of the reasons I think that miraculous healings are not the normal experience for the Christian today. Is because at this time, Jesus is giving them evidence that he is the Son of God who can take away the sins of the world. And the resurrection hadn't happened yet. But now we as Christians, our assurance that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins isn't from him healing a paralytic, it's from Jesus rising from the dead. And we look at that as a testament of who Christ is, not, is he able to heal me today? Because he's already performed the greatest work he could possibly do in order to communicate who he is as a son of God, that he has the power to forgive sin. And when we are looking for Jesus to prove himself through some miracle, 
it is communicated is from the, the assumption that the resurrection itself is not sufficient to communicate who Jesus is. We want more than a resurrection. And Paul says if the resurrection hasn't happened, then it doesn't matter. You're still in your sins. The resurrection is a testimony that we have about God's forgiving us and cleansing us from our sins of the power of Christ. It's in the resurrection. It's not in, he isn't needing to prove himself as healer. He's already proven himself. We don't need more than the resurrection. Do miraculous healings still happen today? Absolutely. All the time. I think we hear the most stories of this happening in places where the gospel is going for the first time, where there's not a lot of belief in who Jesus is as the Son of God. And so still today, I think one of the reasons why God does these miraculous healings, in, especially among unreached peoples as missionaries are there, that one of the reasons why these healings are more prominent in those settings is because they're continuing to give more credence to the testimony and the witness of the missionaries as they're talking about who Jesus is. As people come to understand the reality of the resurrection. But the miracle is just for the sake of communicating who Christ is. It's not for the sake of the miracle itself. It's not for the sake of just being healed. And we, as believers... And different parts of, of the church, you know, we can get caught up in this, that Christians can be deceived into having the expectation that Jesus came to heal us from all of our physical sickness. That the presence of sickness in our life is an evidence of a lack of faith. And this is, this is something that is taught in some churches, in some circles. But... Jesus shows up to the paralytic and the first thing he addresses is not his sickness. But the first thing he addresses is his sin. Because Jesus is truly the great physician. The good healer. Which means that as a good doctor, he knows where the greatest need is. He doesn't just listen to the patient and say, oh, you're telling me that's your biggest problem? Then I'm just going to take you at your word. But rather, he evaluates the individual and he determines, a good doctor determines, you might think that your broken finger is your biggest problem, but you have this growth at this other part of your body, and that's probably a bigger issue. And we need to deal with the real sickness that's a threat to your life, and not just focus on the minor injury that maybe feels like a lot of pain right now, but it's not where the main issue is. And Jesus is a good healer, which means he knows where our greatest needs lie. And so this man comes, and we would think, you know, what could be more pressing than paralysis? And Jesus says, it's your sin. That's why I come, to heal, to take away. And so often I come to Jesus thinking that I know what I need, and Jesus reminds me that he's the healer, and he knows my needs better than I do. I come with a, with a checklist of, okay, Lord, these are the biggest challenges and, and issues in my life currently. And Jesus just kind of ignores all of them, it seems like. And he starts working on other areas because he knows better than I do. And the fact that the paralytic and maybe his friends as well, the crowds there, the fact that they may have been disappointed doesn't mean that Jesus' activity was a disappointment. And just because in a moment we may have a sense of disappointment in what God is doing or not doing in our lives, it doesn't mean that what he is doing is a disappointment in the big picture. There was uh, a letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. Uh, he was uh, a German pastor during the Nazi regime, and he was arrested for being a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. And he, uh, he wrote a letter to his fiancée while he was in prison, and 
Bonhoeffer was going to be executed before the war was over. Uh, <clears throat> but he writes this letter to his fiance, and you know he's in his early 30s at this point, uh, and he knows, I mean, the likelihood of him being released is slim to none. He was planning to help assassinate Hitler, so his prospects are not looking good. And, and yet, why at this point, in this season of life, before he gets in prison, would the Lord provide for him to be able to become engaged to this woman? Like, this doesn't seem like it makes sense. God, it, why would you bring me into a relationship only to then put me in the difficulty of being imprisoned and facing death? It would have been easier if I was never in this engagement to begin with. That would have made more sense. And so he writes this to his, to his fiancée. He, her name's Maria. He says, Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria, even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas. He's writing during Christmas time. We shall both experience a few dark hours. Why should we disguise that from each other? We shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity. We should be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all of our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault. That is all. God is in the manger. Wealth in poverty. Light in darkness. Care in abandonment. No evil can befall us. Whatever man may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love, and he rules the world and our lives. And they face the reality of disappointment in their relationship. Lord, why? And then they consider this is just part and parcel with how God works. You look at the birth of Christ. Why would the king be born in a manger? Why would a king be born in poverty? That God uses that which seems to be a disappointment and unreasonable in order to be the clearest testament of who he is. Redeemer. And as the paralytic is disappointed, I imagine he's disappointed. It doesn't say that he is, but I would imagine there's some disappointment when he just hears your sins are forgiven. There's no statement about being healed. Just as I bring all of my issues to Jesus and he doesn't respond to them the way that I would hope and I'm tempted to be disappointed. We're reminded this is how God works. He brings life out of death. And so what do we perceive to be a disappointment due to God's seeming inactivity. The person we keep praying for, the thing that we keep being burdened by. And what activity is God doing or done? What signposts are we staring at or caught up with? Signposts of healing. Signposts of blessing. Some good thing that God is doing. And we just say, God, if you would just keep doing that over and over again, then life would be good. He says, but the work, the miracle, in this case, the healing, is simply to be a testimony of who I am, to point you to the person of Jesus. And so we, too, we want to be healed. We want to be set free from prison. We want a relationship to be restored. We want finances to not be quite so tight. We pray that the Lord would do all of these different things. And we think that we're doing our due diligence. You know, we're trying to be honorable and live in integrity and be good people and trying to be faithful. And we're pushing through the crowds, trying to just get to Jesus. 
And we finally get to him and say, okay, Lord, here I am. Now you can fix my paralysis. Because I've been good. I've worked hard. I've been faithful. And he doesn't do the thing that we hoped, even though he's able. So why is it God doesn't do what he's able to do? And so we see that he, he heals out of his compassion. He heals as just a testimony of who he is. And then this third reason of why Jesus heals. If you turn to John chapter 11, another one of just my favorite stories in Scripture. So, so good because I just need it. Man, I hear this. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Um, and so there's this family, uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. So there's these three siblings. And it doesn't say anything about their, their parents. It seems like the, these three are all adults. And it says in chapter 11, verse 1, a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her, his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, that he whom you love is sick. What was the reputation Jesus had? He's a healer. That's what he does. These three had probably seen Jesus healing people. They probably watch crowds line up to be able to be healed by Jesus. And they have his personal relationship with him. They've had him in their home. They've sat at Jesus' feet. They've hosted him in their house. They know him. Surely, if Jesus is willing to stand for hours and heal person after person, those whom he has a personal relationship with, who he spent special time with, he's going to be more inclined, even more inclined, to come heal us when we're sick. Jesus, look at who we are. We're, we're with the in crowd. Come on. And so they say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Verse 4, and when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In verse 3, the people bring a message to Jesus, and the message is, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They describe Lazarus as one whom Jesus loves. And then in verse 5, again, it says, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So what does Jesus do in the great context of his love? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. He loves them. And love motivates us to do all kinds of strange things, sacrificial things. People will go above and beyond to communicate their love to somebody else. And it's very evident that Jesus loves these people. And when he hears about their sickness, and he is the great healer, and he can easily heal Lazarus from a distance if he wanted. He did that before in the Gospels. He doesn't do it. It says, instead, verse 6, in the context of Jesus' love for Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days in the place where he was. He hears that this man is on his deathbed, and Jesus stays where he's at. What a disappointment. God, I've come to you with all of my needs, and this is your opportunity to express your great love. And Jesus continues doing exactly what he was doing before. Doesn't go out of his way to come heal Lazarus. He finishes where the Father had called him. And Lazarus ends up dying before Jesus arrives. And then Jesus gets there after Lazarus has been buried for three days. Martha comes up, Lazarus' sister, and she voices what we would have probably all been inclined to say. Verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You could have done something, God. 
Jesus, you could have done something, and you did nothing. You've let us down. Disappointment. You have the ability. Jesus probably would have healed him if he was there. Doesn't say. But when Jesus initially heard this message about Lazarus, that he was sick, he said in verse 4, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. It's not to end in death, but for the glory of God. And this is all surrounding this question of why does Jesus heal so much in his ministry? Why does he spend so many days and hours healing sick people? And it's not simply for the sake of their sickness. If his healing is mainly rooted in his love and compassion for people, then why doesn't he always heal? And we, in our own personal experience, could go around and share stories of loved ones that we know. Jesus is able, and yet he doesn't. So when the disciples hear Jesus say, this sickness won't end in death, They're like, great, let's just stay where we're at. We don't need to go down there. On the road down to where Lazarus is, there's some people that tried to kill us last time we we saw them, so maybe we just avoid them and stay where we are. It's not going to end in death, Jesus. It's okay. He's just sick because Jesus said it wasn't going to end in death. But when Jesus says this sickness isn't going to end in death, he never says Lazarus isn't going to die. He just says that death isn't the end. And so he lets the sickness run its course. Jesus lets Lazarus die. He lets him be buried. And then Jesus shows up. Why is it that Jesus chooses to heal some people and chooses not to heal other people? I think it's there in verse 4. The sickness is for the glory of God. It's not going to end in death. This is for the glory of God. How is God glorified? So that the Son of Man may be glorified. And as his disciples are confused by this, we read in verse 14, when they're Yeah, they're they're hesitant about going down there. And Jesus tells them, verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus says something pretty heartless, right? He says, Lazarus is dead. And guess what? I'm glad I didn't heal him. I'm glad he died. He doesn't say, I'm glad he died. He says, but I'm glad I wasn't there. Because if he was there, he would have healed him. Why is Jesus glad that he wasn't there? And we connect these dots in verse 4. The sickness is to end in the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 15, I'm glad I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. The goal of this situation with Lazarus is for God to be glorified in the Son of God. For Christ to be known. And I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him so that now you, disciples, get to believe in Christ. The the thing which glorifies God is his people believing in who Jesus is. The people of God believing in the person of Christ is glorifying to God. And the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus takes place so that his disciples and Martha and Mary and others would read the signpost of how Jesus handles this situation and they would trust Jesus. They would be brought to a place of greater faith in Jesus Christ. Why is it that Jesus heals some? Why is it that he doesn't heal many? And I can't give 
all of the detailed answers of the, the why. But I know that ultimately it's for the glory of God that we would be brought to a place of greater trust in Him. Maybe He wants to use good health, restored health, to grow our faith. And other times He uses poor health to grow our faith. And so we, we see that God is actively and providentially orchestrating things in our lives to bring us to a place of faith, of entrusting our souls to God. And I just think practically right now, I mean, so his hill, we're on the Guadalupe River, and you drive across that river, and there's, it's just rocks. Like, there's no water. You know, it's, it's so dry. And we just think, God, you, you know what makes sense? Rain. Rain is something that happens in some places. Uh, and we haven't had rain in a long time, and it's just bad. Like drought, there's not water. God, it makes sense that you would send rain. And we pray and we pray and we ask him to send rain and he doesn't send rain. Why not? Is it because he's apathetic? Because he doesn't care? Well, we know that's not the right answer. But I know that something that is happening through the dryness is it is encouraging and bringing people to pray. It's bringing people to exercise faith. As we see our powerlessness, something as simple as a drought brings us to our knees. Why is God not sending rain? I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I know the big reason for his glory. So we would trust him, that we would grow in our faith in who he is. And so I think it's the same in in all the different things we bring to him, that he responds in a way that's going to encourage us to trust Him more. So, um, when, back in Matthew chapter 9, just a few thoughts here, when we had our first child, Abby, we were in North Carolina, and Abby came five weeks early. She was a preemie. And so, you know, first baby, we're very concerned. Like, she's so tiny. She was born at five pounds and dropped to, like, four point something. Uh, Heather knows all the numbers. I forget. Uh, and, and so we're just concerned. Like, oh, man, she needs to be putting on weight. Like, is this okay? What's healthy? What's not healthy? And we, we got this pediatrician who was, she was just a gift from God. Uh, and we got one of the most wonderful pieces of parenting advice uh, from this pediatrician as we were navigating just the fear and the worry that comes with having uh, this, this small baby and wondering, are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? Uh, and, and she just made this statement like she would look at our, our baby and she would see Abby looked healthy. She was fine. Like she wasn't pale. Her coloration was good. And she's laughing and smiling, and yet we're still, as parents, just get concerned, like, is everything okay? Should we be doing something else? Is she gaining weight fast enough? And this pediatrician, she just says, don't try to make a happy baby happier. Like, oh, that makes sense. You know, how much do we, do we feel like we need to make a happy child happier? Happy baby, happier. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 12, we read it in the beginning, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Who is it that come to Jesus for healing? And recognizing too, and I've run out of time, but recognizing that the the most important aspect of Jesus' healer has, has very little to do with physical healing. But it's the healing of the soul. And he says here, he associates these who are sinners, righteous, the righteous versus sinners. And he, he correlates that with health and sickness. And the greatest sickness that needs to be addressed isn't, like the story of the paralytic, isn't his paralysis. It's his sin. It's his separation from God. And Jesus is the great physician, not because he takes away our physical ailments, 
He's a great physician because of what he does to our soul. Because of the restoration that he provides in himself. And we won't come to Jesus if we don't have needs. It's just one plus one equals two. If I don't have any needs, if I am self-sufficient, then why would I come to Jesus? But it doesn't take us long, if we're honest about ourselves at all, to realize I am not self-sufficient. I have a lot of problems. Not just physical ones. Those are the least of them. It's all the internal wrestlings that go on. It's the things that I do that I know are wrong. And I do them anyway. That's where my need is. That's where the healing really needs to take place. Our greatest disease is sin itself. So in Romans 6, verse 10, he says, The death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus comes to make us alive in Christ, to heal us. 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25, he says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The healing has taken place. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. By Jesus' wounds, we are healed. Jesus is the great physician. He's the one who knows our needs greater than we do. And we come and we present our needs to the Lord, the things that we perceive the most pressing issues in our lives. And sometimes it seems like Jesus does nothing. That God ignores it. That God doesn't care. But let us not think or be disappointed in a way that Jesus responds to our needs, but rather let us trust that Jesus is responding to our greatest needs. He knows what needs to be done in our lives. He knows what we need. And so just some closing thoughts. We can we can bring our perceived needs to Jesus in faith, knowing he'll meet our truest need. The works, the works of Christ are simply reflections of the person of Christ. And the works are not the goal, but they are the means by which we're encouraged to draw near to him. So we don't just focus on what Jesus is able to do, but it's coming to believe who he is. All of God's activity in our lives, the hurt that he allows, and the healing he provides, are for the purpose of encouraging us in faith. And God is glorified and worshipped as we both individually and corporately see Jesus for who he is, and we trust him. We entrust ourselves to him. And lastly, both the physical sickness and the spiritual sickness that we currently experience, they're just temporary. So as we close, I just want to read from Revelation 21. And we have a longing for physical healing because we know that physical sickness isn't right. It's not the end of the story. There's something better coming. And so in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 6, as Jesus, or John, writes about things to come in the future, it says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God says these are just the first things that we experience now. We're in the first things still. 
we haven't gotten to the, the long-term reality of what we're going to experience in life. These are the first things. The pain, the sickness, the sin, it's all just the first things. And he goes on and he says in verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Jesus desires to bring healing. He promises to bring complete healing one day. But he desires to to restore our soul even today. And the thing about all those that came to Jesus for physical healing, something that characterizes them is faith. Do you believe I can make you well? Yes, Lord. Spiritual healing is the same exact thing. Do we come to Jesus in faith? Believing he really is the one who can meet our needs. Let me pray. God, we thank you just for the, just the preciousness of this truth. Lord, as we come and we have the, the various things that wear in our minds, on our hearts, and then the other things that we're not even aware of that are often, in a sense, bigger issues or a bigger deal. And we just thank you that you are wise and good and that we don't have to have it all figured out, but we can just entrust our souls to you. And God, we do anticipate these future things that are described in Revelation 21. We look forward to this day. And may we have the, just the, the perspective that what we currently experience, these are just the first things. There's so much more to come. So may we trust you today as we anticipate what you have in the future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.